pastel de nata. Churros. Brigadeiro. Calzone. Apple pie. 水煮肉片. Bangers and mash. Toad in the hole. Paella. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. My name is David Martins, and I'm the executive chef for the European Union Embassy in Washington, D.C. And my guest today, finally, after 47 episodes on this podcast, I'll have my first Portuguese guest on the show. He's a chef and owner of the two Michelin star restaurant Alma, a.k.a. Sol, in Lisbon. He has hosted several cooking shows and also has written several best-selling cookbooks, including his latest one, Contradição. He attended culinary school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and has worked in London and Australia before returning to Portugal in 2002. If he wasn't a chef, he might have been a basketball player and perhaps the first one playing in the NBA. Most recently, he was nominated by the Chef's Awards as one of the top 100 chefs in the world. His motto in the kitchen is keep it simple, keep it fresh. Henrique Sapsour, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. How are you? Very good. Thank you for the for the invite. It's a pleasure to talk to a Portuguese in Washington, of course. In English, <laughs> talking to Portuguese in English. Uh, normally, I always start the podcast asking if my guests have been to Portugal. That part is obvious. And or I can ask the reverse if they've been to the United States, which since you study here, that part is also obvious. So we're going to start with basketball, which is probably uh, a lot of people are wondering. So you love basketball. Yeah. To start, to start off right away, if you could be a player, which position would you be? I'd be a shooting guard. Oh, okay. Shooting Most guard. likely. What's your or a point guard. What's your favorite NBA team? Currently, Brooklyn Nets and LA Lakers. Favorite basketball player of all time? Well, that's an easy one. I, I was, you know, I, I'm a 90s and 80s guy, so it's an obvious answer. Michael Jordan. Okay. <laughs> So, Although now LeBron, LeBron, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. Yeah. Which influence basketball had in your life? So growing up, did you play? I know you still play, but what was the influence growing up basketball had in your life? Well, I always say that if I if I didn't play basketball, I would never have become a chef. Which people always say, you know, what's what's one thing got to do with the other? And I say, well, basketball was my first true passion when I was around 12, and this was also due to the NBA. Uh, because NBA aired on national TV in Portugal during the late 80s and early 90s. And this was, you know, during the Michael Jordan, the beginning of Michael Jordan era. You know, I still got a little bit of Detroit Pistons. You know, I was fully into the NBA, statistics, players, starting lineups of all teams. I was like very, very much obsessed with it. And this NBA influence got a lot of kids starting to play basketball, you know, in the, in the 90s and the late 80s. I was one of them. So first I started playing street basketball. And then within a year, I decided to, to, to play, you know, well, not professionally, as in like to play in, outside school, because in Portugal, we don't have school sports or it doesn't work exactly like it works in the US. This obsession led me to wanting to go to the United States to study. Uh, in this case, I don't know if you heard of AFS programs. So uh, in the 90s, there, there, would be, there was a lot of exchange programs and AFS was one of the, the models that was used to, to basically uh, put you with an American family uh, and then live with them for a year. So I did this in 93, 90, uh, 94-95, uh, which basically I graduated from high school here and then I repeated my senior year in the States in, uh, with an American family. 
that took me to Pennsylvania, uh, Natrona Heights, which is a small community outside of Pittsburgh, about 45 minutes from Pittsburgh. And then I played in high school as well. Of course, once you arrive in the States, you understand that basketball there is <laughs> quite different. Uh, and I actually ended up in a, in a WPIL champion team. So they were like state champions, uh, okay. which made, made it a, an amazing experience, but at the same time made it really hard to, to be on a team. I played junior varsity, so I was like second string. And it was a, it was a really good experience. But during that senior year, that's when I, uh, you know, started thinking about cooking in one of my classes i had a home economics we had a well you know in the states they do a lot of the recruiting for colleges in the actual high school mm-hmm. uh, and i had a student from um, a cooking school going to talk about the school and i was fascinated by you know the you know the whole chef living because in portugal i had a completely different idea of what what the chef meant to be you know And then I, um, I was like, yeah, I, I want to try out the school. I, you know, I did the trial test to go to the school and I, I got accepted. And then I came back to Portugal for one year to then return to the States and, and did college there. Well, not college, it was like an institute. So it was a year and a half cooking course. But like I said, if I hadn't gone through basketball, I would have never ended up in a cooking school probably. What was your first encounter with American food when you arrived? It has changed a lot in the last, you know, 25 years. Which, yes, it has. Which, which prejudices did you have about American food that they were wrong? Because just as a parenthesis here, one of the things, for instance, a lot of restaurants seek nowadays is the whole farm-to-table concept. And probably one of the first, first ones was Alice Waters uh, in California in 1970. She did that. So the U.S. was already ahead of some people, but... Because of the, you know, culturally, we just think they have a few things. But what was the biggest prejudice when you got here that you, that you were wrong about it? I guess, you know, we have to understand that back in the 90s, uh, we didn't have, you know, Facebook, Instagram. So the information was a lot harder to obtain uh, regarding, you know, especially regarding food. So to be honest with you, the only thing that I knew about American food was like burgers and chicken wings and, uh, you know, brownies and ice cream. I didn't really have a clue of what uh, American food was all about. I remember like one of the first experience I had was the breakfast. <laughs> and, you know, they have like those sausage patties. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a burger. So I'm like putting it on a plate thinking I'm going to eat a burger. And it was like a, a sausage, you know, yeah. uh, in the shape of a, of a burger. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that's just the most horrible thing I've ever had, you know. And then someone explained to me, that's not a burger. That's like a sausage, uh, you know, sausage patty. And I'm like, it, it looks like a burger, you know. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, once I got into my family, which funny enough, we're still quite close. Uh, we're, I still remain uh, in contact with my American family. I actually saw them in Miami three years ago. And my family actually uh, was quite healthy in terms of uh, home cooking, you know, like my mother would, you know, make tomato sauce on the weekends. So you could have like fresh tomato sauce during the, during the week to, to make, you know, like baked dishes. She, she was quite healthy and quite fresh in terms of the cooking. Actually, I learned a lot with her in terms of organizing the, the home uh, economics. You know, we would have like the occasional like apple pie, pecan pie, pumpkin pie, which I fell in love with. And one of the things that I was obsessed with 
was Dr. Pepper and Reese's Cups. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so that's like very American. Like mm -hmm. if you, you know, if you ask anyone what the Dr. Pepper is, like in Europe, 90% of people will know what it is. Yeah. Uh, it, and it's not cherry Coke. It's different. Yeah, it Dr. Is. Pepper is, is different. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, I was, uh, if you gave me Dr. Pepper, Twizzlers and cherry Coke I was, uh, and uh, uh, Reese's Cups, I was, uh, I was a happy man back then. <laughs> Oh, and grilled cheese sandwiches, okay. definitely. Which which That's made a, a super now? Uh, no, they didn't do. They didn't do it. I I, I used to do it with an egg, with a fried okay. egg, like you know, toast, yes. butter, cheese. I've heard you said before you don't come from um, the conventional background as a chef because even you said that you know no. a lot of people have a reference, and I'm a little bit like you as well. I don't. I didn't have that. Like grandma used to cook, right? And you were like, and you learn. Can you talk a little bit about that? I was raised in Kerkevelge, which is a suburb of Lisbon. Uh, it's a beach town, well, city beach town. So yeah, I was kind of a city boy, divorced parents. My dad was alone for quite a while. So, you know, he would do the get-by cooking, you know, like frozen pizzas with some toppings and uh, spaghetti bolognese, bacalhau dishes, you know. So it was not like that country cooking, like 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 you say, like the grandmother cooking. It was not like that. My mom is a very good cook. It's funny because she always used to say, I had asthma as a kid. And asthma, you know, it takes a lot of your appetite away when you're young, especially when you have it. Like I had it like from six months until up, up, up almost until I was 10. So it's a, it's a tricky time to to have asthma and uh, my mom always used to say like you were never a good eater but you were a picky eater which means that I if the food was good I would eat and if the food was not good like for example in a cafeteria of the of the school <laughs> yeah. then I would I would not I would not eat it uh, so yeah like I, I didn't have, like you said, I didn't have the conventional like uh, upbringing as most chefs that, you know, uh, would go to the countryside and pick up their own veggies and cook with their grandmothers. And, you know, those romantic stories, uh, that, that was not me. So let's imagine that I'm not Portuguese. And the first thing I do, I go to Portugal and you, I arrive at the airport and you are, and you are right there in front of me. And the first thing I ask you is, what is Portuguese food? How would you describe it? If I can pick on a popular internationally known food uh, like Italian, I would say that Portuguese food is very regional. So I can't classify Portuguese food as a general thing, you know, because if I go to Lisbon, I'm going to have one experience. If I go to Porto, I'm going to have another experience. If I go to Algarve, I'm going to have another experience. You know, within 50Ks, you know, perimeter, you can have a completely different experience in terms of food. The one common thing that I would say we have, and that's, that distinguishes from everyone else is fish and seafood because we are blessed with, uh, I, I don't think people realize that Portugal, our coastline goes all the way up to Açores. And uh, if people can see on the map where Açores is and, and draw all the line that goes around it, it's, it's quite a big area to fish. It's a lot, yeah. So that, that gives us definitely, um, you know, a unique a variety of fish and shellfish and you know we've got crackers we've got percebes we got amaijuas we got lambujinhas we've got conquilhas you know um bruxas uh, lobster you know um which is when someone comes from us especially they they just get blown away i remember the first time 
when Anthony Bourdain came to Portugal, I was actually the first chef that got contacted by the production team in the US to, to be with him. And the first thing I said, we got to take him to Ramiro. Ramiro is like a, a classic seafood, seafood yeah. uh, place. And he was blown away just by the variety, you know, especially when he had a Carabinado. That was like the, you know, the showstopper. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I definitely always say. Seafood defines us. Uh, porco preto, porco ibérico, uh, porco alentejano. Also, it's something that you can only find here in Spain. And even the Spanish admit that the best pork comes from Portugal, although they make better presunto. <laughs> so, yeah, I, but then, you know, I, I couldn't say, okay, a lot of garlic, a lot of potatoes, a lot of herbs, coriander, especially in parsley. You know, we got the refugado. Okay, those are staple things that are associated to our cooking. But uh, that's that's as far as I could go in terms of giving you a hint about the Portuguese food. Then you would have to really, you know, go to the places. If you go to Alentejo, you're going to eat certain kinds of food. If you go to, you know, Porto or Braga or, you know, even the Covilhã or the Viseu, you're going to have different experiences everywhere. One of the things, you know, when I was, so I did culinary school, I started 15 years ago. And the biggest thing at the time was people saying, trying to, if someone asks you, like, what do you want to do when you open your own restaurants will be elevate Portuguese food. It was always that story, right? It's to take the traditional food, I don't know, changes the more contemporary foods. What's the biggest difference be for you between traditional and contemporary food? I think portion size. <laughs> That's definitely one of them. Presentation and portion, portion size is definitely the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, refinement, make it a little bit lighter because Portuguese food can be quite heavy, especially, you know, with the olive oil and the fried items and the, you know, like the sausages, the enchid. So in order to make it more appealing, you would have to balance it a little bit better. So, yeah, I think it's a bit more about Uh, what I do at Alma, for example, is I, I inspire myself in traditional regional recipes uh, and I try to refine a lot of the elements of the recipes. Some of them I make it lighter. Some of them I, I altogether change uh, and tweak around and play around with it to, to make it more suitable for a, well, for a tasting menu, if that's the case, or even if you're just having a la carte. I want you to live with a with a sense of lightness, which I think it's very important nowadays because people are very conscious about their, their health, their weight. And even, you know, you want to leave a restaurant feeling good, you know, not, yeah. not feeling heavy. And also the flavor. I think for me, that's always the key. You know, like if I can give you like a cabrito that gives you that sense of childhood recipe that you had with your grandmother, but with a completely new presentation uh, with a lighter way to, to present it and still give you that nostalgic experience. I think for me, that's, that's when I hit the mark. Why do you believe more and more people are drawn to Lisbon? Because, and you know, you live in the area and I've been here for 10 years, but every time I go back, you can tell there's more and more and more people going to Lisbon. Why do you think that is? And also, do you think the boom that restaurant business got in Lisbon, it's a good thing And if you think that will filter out in the rest of the country? Well, like any booms in, you know, when a city becomes popular, there's good things and bad things. I think the good things is obviously the economy. You know, the, Lisbon is a much better city now than it was 10 years ago uh, in terms of living conditions, in terms of restaurant offering, hotels, even, you know, sightseeing. Uh, Lisbon was a 
beaten down city in the 90s. You know, uh, I think after Expo 98, that was the first big transformation of the city. And then when the last crisis hit uh, in 2008, uh, I think Portugal and Lisbon in particular saw an opportunity to to be more creative. So a lot of new things were happening in Lisbon. I think they were happening to survive the crisis, not so much to, to be creative, but I think Portuguese have always been creative in tough situations. We mastered the art of desenrascar, <laughs> which means, you know, in, in good English, it means, yes. you know, to, to get by. And I think those uh, little transformations, uh, you know, uh, made Lisbon very appealing. And when you compare it to other you know, like Paris, London, uh, Rome, uh, other major capitals, they were becoming very globalized. I think Lisbon still kept that essence. And I think when people came to Lisbon, they, they felt the experience was very authentic. Uh, the Portuguese are very uh, easygoing. We speak very good English, which is also something that when you compare to Spanish, Italian and French, you know, we are, I think we are much more capable in terms of the, the language. Mm -hmm. um, and we also a lot more submissive, you know, I think, for example, a Spanish, even if you speak to him in English, he can even know how to speak English, but he'll speak to you in Spanish, just kind of like out of pride and Portuguese are the opposite. We're like, no, no, I know how to speak English. So I'm going to, I want to speak English, you know, yeah. uh, we've always been very outgoing in, uh, in terms of languages. Uh, and when I mean English, I mean English, French, you know, uh, we, we get by. And I think also the fact that Lisbon, you know, it's got, beach 20 minutes away you've got uh, mountains you know close by you've got alentejo close by you've got costa lentejana got 220 days of sun i think it's one of the sunniest cities in the in the world you know this crazy mix uh, and also the fact that lisbon finally was open to uh and see tourism with a salvation in terms of economy as well so we start thinking business-wise in a different way instead of looking at a tourist as some, someone that comes by in one, two months out of the year, we start thinking, no, we need to cater for these people like 12 months. We need to have nice hotels. We need to have nice restaurants. We need to have, uh, and I think the mayor at the time, which is not the prime, the prime minister, mm -hmm. was actually one of the most important also to promote this uh, incoming of people. Uh, and also the fact that we, you know, for a long time, Lisbon Airport was close to two or three airlines. And then suddenly we, we start opening up, you know, for uh, low cost airlines. Uh, that was also a major change. And yeah, that led us to, to be one of the coolest cities to come to. And uh, a lot of successful projects, for example, Time Out Market, I don't know if you're, if you're mm -hmm. aware, yep. is the most visited market in the world in terms, mm -hmm. of, uh, in terms of visits. And yeah, it took us, it led us to where we are today. Of course, with that also came a lot of bad restaurants, <laughs> a lot of, uh, you know, excess tourism, a lot of excessive Airbnbs. But, you know, I, I still think that Lisbon, after all of that, we still are able to, to be a cool enough city to be authentic, I think. Yeah. I still think we haven't lost the identity like some other cities are more... You know, like, for example, Barcelona, I've been going to Barcelona for over 20 years. And I think Barcelona lost a lot of their identity. And I think we are still on the, I think we've been managing. So hopefully, of course, 2020 and, and this year are being uh, very hard years in terms of, in terms of having uh, visitors. But I think once things get back to normal, I think Lisbon is always going to be a, a very cool city to visit. 
if you go away from Lisbon, so one of my favorite places to go every time I'm on vacation, I always go to Alentejo. Évora, that's the area normally I go. Americans have something in that it's I started to appreciate more, which is if you go to a street here and if it was just American food, like 20 restaurants and 19 out of the 20 will be American food, Americans probably will try one of one of those 19 restaurants and that's it. For instance, when you go away from Lisbon and Porto, and I know things are changing slightly, you will have one street and every restaurant will say the traditional Portuguese food, traditional Portuguese food, traditional Portuguese, one after the other, after the other. And I love our food and I miss our food, but I can spend three weeks in Alentejo, but after the second week, it's like, okay, right? Do you think that business owners, they have to look, you know, to their staff and they have to look at their business and be like, we probably need to, like we we're talking about a little bit, like you did and other chefs did, which is have a little bit of a, a touch in our foods. We got to elevate or take these food to a different place because I think that's the only thing probably still lacking, especially outside of Lisbon and outside of Porto, which is that problem. You know, I love Portuguese food, but you go to, you know, one street having 20 restaurants, 20 out of 20 is Portuguese foods. I'm not so sure how the business model goes. Does it make sense? Yes, do you, it does. Do you think that will change with time? Like it changed with Lisbon? Do you think it will change with time? I agree with you that once you leave Lisbon and Port, like the, the big cities, we still are lacking a little bit of variety. And it's not so much that you have the regional cooking. I think it's important to go to Evra and, 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 and eat regional. But I think within regional, you can have a lot of variety of concepts. You know, um, you know, one can be more focused on on baking like breads and light light items for breakfast. Another one can be more more focused on cheese. Another one can be more focused on wine. Another one can be more focused on like you know regional cooking. And sometimes, like it's like you said, you tend to see ten restaurants and they're all doing exactly the same menus, and that can be a little bit frustrating. But I think. That has to do a little bit with the lack of training, the lack of professional training that some of these places have, because most of the places are family-owned. And most of the places were not actually thinking about having a restaurant. It was kind of like, you know, open up a business and, you know, the mom, dad, kids work all there. They never traveled. They never gone outside of Portugal. They never seen other concepts. But that's changing as well. And um, actually, recently... And this is very recently with the pandemic. Some chefs that were doing very well in Lisbon are thinking about going to those areas because they think that Lisbon is getting overcrowded and they want to give it a try outside of Lisbon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, one girl uh, that I, I like her, uh, I like her a lot in terms of what she does, Ana Moura. She's actually going to Porto Covo. And you say, like, why would you go to Porto Covo? And she's like, well, I'm going to Porto Covo because I love that town. And I think I can do something for the town there. And sometimes all you need is one person to start a movement. And then the other ones kind of go, hang on a second. You know, she's doing something different. So maybe we should like invest in something different as well. And Portuguese are a lot like that, you know. Yeah. If, there's one, if there's one doing well, then all the other ones go after to. I remember, you know, almost 10 years ago, I opened Caixa da Pedra, which was a burger and cocktail concept. And this was very much a dream of mine because of my time in the States, you know, like uh, I had that, you know, the brownies, the New York style cheesecake, a huge cocktail bar, you know, burgers, uh, you know, bacon and egg burgers and whatever, cheeseburgers. 
And when <laughs> I burgers when and I, burgers, yeah, burgers and burgers. And and when I started it, it was a huge success. You know, it was crazy. Like we we used to have eight hundred, nine hundred covers. Uh, it was it was just insane. And then suddenly, like. 30, 40, 50 burger places opened up uh, in Lisbon. And of course, we, you know, gradually start losing our business because, you know, people start obviously spreading out. But yeah, like Portugal is a lot like that. You know, you had the burger phenomenon now, you, and then you had like the Carpaccio, you know, Italian phenomenon. Then you had the ceviches is now the mm -hmm. new thing. You know, now you have sushi is a new thing. So it's it's very much in trends, and when this happens, a lot of restaurants open, and you know that eventually it blows up because it's based on being a trend and not on the quality or the quality of the chef or the quality of the products or the quality of the service. So there are restaurants that you know are going to last three, four, five years, and I think now with what's happening with the pandemic, I think a lot of the restaurants that are going to close were those trendy restaurants that you know. I'm not saying they were bad. I'm just saying they were not doing anything anything different or anything special enough for them to work only with a Portuguese market, which is what, you know, what is sustaining a restaurant right now. With COVID, COVID has been very difficult in the last year, especially for a lot of business and also especially for hospitality. Michelin star restaurants normally can be more expensive. Therefore, not everyone can try them. Did this last year change the way you see hospitality going in the future, especially high-end restaurants? To be honest with you, in Alma in particular, I didn't see much of a change. And I'm going to explain to you why. Alma, although a two-star restaurant and although not cheap, is not over-the-top expensive. You've been there. Mm -hmm. uh, especially when you compare it to the equivalent of a two-star restaurant in Spain, France, Italy, US. I remember having a lot of Americans saying, you know, for what we're having here in terms of food and wine, in New York or in Chicago, we would oh, yeah. pay... Uh, almost double. Yeah, I still haven't felt that you know that difference. But of course, when I think about the Portuguese market, we have to be aware that the Portuguese market is is not uh, you know doesn't have the same capacity in, in terms of paying for a meal like like you know an Italian or a French or especially an American can can do it. Because I've always had a la carte as well. You can still go to Walmart for 50, 60 euros if you want to, or you can splash out and spend two hundred. You know, it's up. It's really up to you. The only thing that I that I think it has changed a little bit is the perception of luxury. You know, uh, luxury for me now is about detail, is about hospitality, is about attention to detail. It's about love. It's about passion. It's about showing everything that you have when someone visits you. It's not about having crystal glasses and caviar and champagne and, you know, all the luxury things that are normally associated to a, a fine dining or a Michelin star restaurant that before were kind of like, if you have that, you know, it's a no brainer. Now I think that is just not enough. And that can make it really hard to sustain a restaurant. If you, if you're stuck on that business model, you know, to have mm -hmm. like 30 chefs in the kitchen, 30 waiters, Like, for example, a restaurant like Eleven Medicine Park, this new model, I don't know how possible it is to run a restaurant like that, you know? I'm not saying I, didn't, I don't like it or I didn't like it as it was. I'm just saying that now, I just don't know how you can predict how you can, you know, run a restaurant based on a business model like that. It costs so much to, to run, you know? Yep. So I think 
what you will see in the next coming months and years, I think it's a, a, like a downsizing of, of, uh, of teams, a downsizing of even menus. I keep it simple approach towards fine dining restaurants a lot smaller like even today i was sp- speaking to a friend of mine she she went to a restaurant in gothenburg mm-hmm. uh in sweden and and the restaurant had six covers and it was just a chef serving and serving the wine it had two guys him and another one and six yeah. six, six covers and he you know he's probably gonna get a michelin star this year by the sounds of it so i think things have changed and even if you look at alma Alma 10 years ago would never be a two-star restaurant in Lisbon. And now it is. So I think even Michelin is also adjusting a little bit what Michelin was stapled as before and how Michelin sees the business now. So, yeah, I think if anything, downsizing, cutting costs, uh, well, fixed costs on the, on the business model, uh, to keep it simple and, and use your creativity in, in a much more approachable way and, and trying to impress the guests with the heart and not so much with the, with everything around with you. everything else. Yeah. 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 Imagine you can go to an island. A favorite island? Yeah. In terms of like for example, I think Azores are, are are definitely like one of the most beautiful set of islands in the world and people are not aware of it. You can take one protein, one dessert, one veggie, and one fruit. What do you take? And the island is just for you. So in your bag, instead of taking... The island is just for me. Uh, In terms of protein, uh, I will take porco preto because Mm -hmm. there's no way I can find it there. In terms of vegetables, I would probably take tomatoes. In terms of fruit, probably apples. Because I think apple is, is something that you can use in the savory world and in the sweet world. So it's, mm-hmm. it's a very versatile fruit. And in terms of dessert, dessert I wouldn't really care so much because you can make pretty much everything. Uh, but I'll probably take chocolate. What was your first memory of taste? That's a good one. And it's a hard one to recall. Probably the, the, the one that I, that I liked the least and I still have panic attacks to this <laughs> day is the uh, anatta. On top of the milk, you know the. Oh yeah, when uh, the yeah, the, not the way, but yeah, that little creamy part that says on top of the milk. Yes, yeah, that yeah. sets. Uh huh. That repulses me still to this day. Still uh, a very uh, bad memory. In terms of a childhood memory, I would say Ball of Berlin. Probably was like one that comes to mind constantly. Which is basically you know, a stuffed donut. Yeah, stuffed donut yeah. with with uh, pastry cream with or that, egg cream. Yeah, mm-hmm. with egg cream. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's I, 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 you know, I always recall licking the the top part of the of the donut, uh, and obviously, of course, the pastel nut is also one that that that, that uh, comes to mind for sure as a as a kid. I got a sweet tooth though. So, yeah. most underrated ingredient. I still see bacalhau as an underrated ingredient because a lot of people, especially. Uh, when you have people from coming to visit us, they always say everything but salted cod because they have yeah. this terrible image of salted cod. And I think it's because it's mistreated everywhere by excessive cooking, you know, overboiling, not being soaked properly or, you know, or being oversoaked and then becomes blends. So I still think that salted cod is an underrated ingredient. I think it's an amazing ingredient. You can do so many amazing things with it, but I still think because... It has that bad image. It's still mistreated. And also sardines are underrated for sure. Overrated? I would say piri piri chicken, although piri piri chicken can be considered overrated because I love okay. it. 
but uh, I I feel I still think sometimes we're famous for that, and you kind of like we're we're not really that you know it's not all about pure pure chicken when it comes to Portugal. I remember yeah. the first time I landed in Australia, I would say I was Portuguese, and they're like, oh yeah, Nando's pure pure chicken. Mm-hmm. I'm like, we don't have Nando's in Portugal. Yeah, no. we don't. <laughs> um, I think in terms of being overrated, I, I think probably that and. I think sometimes in in terms of non-related food, I think we're we're overweight in terms of football, in terms of soccer. I think sometimes, you know, I know, I know. we right. have the best in the world and we have a great team, but we always choke under pressure. <laughs> sure. And just as a side as a side note, one of the things that's nothing to do with food, but I'm I'm a big basketball fan, Dallas Mavericks, since I was 10 years old, and I. So I follow sports here a lot, and the biggest difference between the U.S. and Portugal, we are much more. We, I'm saying Americans, much more laid back. Oh, we lost. Fine. You have and you you have actually journalists oh. and you have podcasts. You have podcasts about sports. People talk very open. If someone actually failed in Portugal, as you know very well, it's just it's it's. it's Can you imagine hard. someone clapping from someone else's skills on scoring a goal? between Porto and Benfica. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or you have ba- so. Yeah, we have basketball players that, you know, they they tweet about, you know, their former club. It's it there's a whole and because I think everybody goes to college here, they all kind of know each other. All the all the coaches know each other. They all go on TV. It's much uh, that's why I love American sports in that regard because we don't have that in Portugal. Don't even dare to say something about one of the, as you know very well. It- and the thing that I love about American sports as well is that and this almost I, I can think probably the best example of that is wrestling, you know, which is a totally a totally made out sport to be entertaining. That's it, because we know they're fighting, but we know they're not really fighting. <laughs> That's true. Uh, but you've got like people, you know, thirty, forty thousand people watching these guys bashing each other, and and it's all theater. But it's it's just you know thinking about you know the 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 sports and the spectacular and entertaining part and i think all sports you know always the evolution of sports in the states is always towards the spectacular things that happen in sports you know even in nba you look at the nba in the 90s and now you know you look at the scoreboards in the 80s and 90s like you know 78 82 it's all the three three points yeah and now you have like 140 to 130 you know in in a regular game yeah uh, the the fouling system is much more strict now. Uh, you know, like if Michael Jordan went through, you know, during the Detroit Pistons era, you know, the Bad Boys era, mm-hmm. he would just get killed. Yeah. And now, if you touch a player, you get like fined, suspended. Yeah. You know, it's so true. and it's based on you know they want the the sport to be more spectacular. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you if you if you're gonna throw a guy down for a dunk. Uh, the guy's probably not going to try to dunk next time. And here now it's the opposite. Like, no, we want you to dunk because yeah, we yeah, want yeah. we need the dunks to to have people going. Wow, that's amazing! That's, now. that's true. So that's cool. What is the best breakfast you can have? Pancakes. I thought you were going to say sausage patties. <laughs> no, the sausage patties, but bacon's bacon <laughs> and pancakes. Mm-hmm. That's good. You know, with ma- good maple syrup, I love it. You okay. know, I lo- I love savory and sweet things. But I make really good pancakes. Apparently, I make the best pancakes in the world for my daughter. So she says. Okay. Uh, the big difference is that I whip up the egg whites, so they're kind of like tall and fluffy, mm-hmm. which makes them lighter. Uh, and lately, I've been doing these hazelnut chocolate stuffed pancakes that apparently are doing wonders. So 
It went viral on, on Facebook. So. Sounds, sounds good to me. Uh, so what is the strangest combination food-wise when you see people putting two or three ingredients together that you just cannot accept? I've seen a chef doing it, and actually I, I, bowed, I bowed down to him for, for achieving it. Uh, although when I, when I saw it, uh, garlic prawns with chocolate ganache, uh, I would say that was revolting, but in his hands, it actually worked. Okay. Unfortunately, a lot of chefs tried to copy the plate and it, it didn't work out for them. So yeah, I would say chocolate and prawns are not best friends. So the name of the podcast is Turning Chickens and Breaking Dishes. As you might know very well, this is actually two Portuguese phrases. Turning chickens means someone that has a lot of experience and breaking dishes means someone that has exceeded all expectations. Do you think you've been turning more chickens or breaking more dishes? I don't know. <laughs> I still think I'm turning chickens because uh, I, I never, I've never seen myself as arrived where I want to be and that's it. But at the same time, I'm not overly ambitious. Uh, my ambition is more, more, more based on my inner drive to, to do different things. Uh, it's not like I want to buy the Mercedes and the house and the yacht. And I've never, I never saw, well, and most chefs, especially in the Portuguese reality, <laughs> most chefs are never going to achieve that kind of richness through yeah, their careers. That, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, for me, it's more about Uh, every year setting goals for myself even the Michelin stars was an objective that uh, in terms of like let's shift the boat towards that direction but it was not like oh if I don't get the Michelin star I'm going to jump off the boat you know mm -hmm. uh, it was never like that and I'm glad that I actually achieved the Michelin star at a very late phase of my career you know I was already 20 years cooking when I got my first star uh, which for me is actually good because then I, I, I didn't have to deal with all that pressure You know, I, I can't imagine earning a start at, you know, at 24 or 25. You know, mm -hmm. I think that's, I understand how chefs get there now because, you know, the formula is much more clear, but uh, I still think that people are in a hurry to get to certain places. And I think sometimes it, you know, it takes time to become a chef. Uh, it takes a lot of training, especially, I think the most difficult part is actually your, your palate, you know, to develop minds, palate and skills, it takes time. You can work with the best chefs in the world. Like I see kids that are like two years in Noma, two years in Levin Medicine Park, two years in Roca. Two, they do like two year stints in all these chefs and then suddenly, okay, I can, I can do my own thing now. And it's like, maybe you can, or like technically you're, you can be really developed, but then you still need time to, to create your own style. You know, like imagine a piano player being, a huge piano player after six years or five years of playing piano. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. It's like a, a little bit building the house, starting from the roof. I always say that, right? Without the, instead of starting with the foundation. Yeah. yeah. Or, or a baby running before he can walk. <laughs> exactly. You know? exactly. At the end of the podcast, I always tell my guests to sell their fish, vender o peixe, as you might say, as you might know as well in Portugal, it's to talk about you. You know, for American listeners, where people can go when they go to Lisbon, if they want to try out your restaurant, you know, where people can find you. I know you just released a book. So, Enrique, just sell your fish. Vendo peixe. If I can sell my fish, I, I think Alma is a mandatory, you know, visit in Lisbon for the right reasons. I think we're, you know, a very humble, approachable, uh, cool, uh, but at the same time, uh, you know, very precise with the cooking, very adventurous, fun And we have great service. So I think it's a, an all-around cool restaurant to visit. And you, 
most likely going to have a good experience. How could I sell my fish more? I have a private atelier, uh, which is, uh, I started, you know, three years ago with this private experience because it's hard when you go to a restaurant to engage with the chef, you know. Okay, maybe I can go to the table. Hey, how are you? That's cool, you know. Uh, I'm glad you enjoyed the dinner or we can talk for a little bit. But I can never be one-on-one with you. And I created this experience at Atelier where you can book Atelier uh, up to 12 people and it's basically like me inviting you to come to my house so it's not so much about the dining experience it's about us hanging out and uh, talk about food and wine and listen to music and for me it's a it's a great cultural experience because I'm engaging with people that I normally are passionate about food and I, I also love being around people like that and they can bring me also stories from from other parts of the world it's a business as well because of, obviously I'm selling my fish. <laughs> so there's a, there's a cost, there's a price for that experience. Uh, but it's a win-win, you know, it's a win for the people that come in because it's a totally different restaurant experience. And it's a win for me because like I said, I'm hanging out with these people and I'm doing what I love, you know, cooking. And uh, it's not so much, like I said, it's not so much focused on, on fine dining because normally it's me and another chef in the kitchen and another like two waiters. So it's a, it's a much more humble experience. It's not, it's not meant to be like, uh, over-the-top experience it's a little bit i don't know if you've seen that 40 grams the mm-hmm. documentary yeah. kind of like that although the guy was a bit more obsessed with with details I'm, I'm more like for me it's more about about socializing and having fun than giving you the ultimate dining experience yeah. but the ambience is a little bit like like you saw in 40 grams and for american listeners now if you go to alma the first requirement you got to bring a box of dr pepper just, just leave yes. the restaurants. Bring the Dr. Pepper. Reese's might have cups. a ten percent off. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yes. Dr. Pepper, Twizzlers, and Reese's cups are, are definitely a good way to, uh, or you can say, you, to gratify. Instead of <laughs> leaving a tip, you can leave Reese's cups. Uh, well, I'm not sure if the waiters will, will yeah, appreciate it as much as I do. <laughs> Enrique, this was a pleasure. Obrigado. Thank you. Uh, Thank I'm you very happy invite. to having my first. I had Chacal here before, but the first Portuguese Portuguese will be you. Uh, it was a pleasure. And I promise when I go back to Lisbon, when we can all travel again, I'll bring you, you know, some Twizzlers and some Dr. Peppers and all of that. So. But thank you very much. And I'll bring you, I'll bring you, if I go to the States, I'll bring you some probably chorizo for the yeah. I think that's what, that's the least one of the things that I missed the most was chorizo, like yeah. a good chorizo. It's a good trait. Uh, and I'll bring you some wine. I'm sure you'll appreciate some Portuguese yes. wine as well. Yes, thank you. <laughs> All right, David. Thank, thank you. you. Was that a lot of conversation about Portugal? Anyway, you can survive. Thank you very much, Henrique or Henry, just in case you're wondering the translation, for coming on the podcast. If you guys visit Lisbon, go to Alma. It's an outstanding restaurant, so just give it a try. And don't forget, bring that Dr. Pepper. He's going to like that. If you want to follow the podcast page on Instagram, you can do so on Turny Chickens Breaking Dishes. You can also send me an email if you have any questions, any suggestions to info at turningchickensandbreakingdishes.com. Also, don't forget, if you want to support the podcast, you can do so. Go to buymeacoffee.com slash dmartins. I'll be back next week. Stay safe, be happy, adeus.